Okay, so welcome to the first Sunday Bible study special Tuesday night edition. <laughs> so, because I am going to for a while continue with what we've been doing on Sunday mornings. And uh, part of that's because I'd like to um, get as much teaching done on the Holy Spirit before the uh, Pentecost Sunday as, as possible. And I think we're down to about five Sundays before Pentecost, Ian and Anvesh would know, since they're getting married on the day before Pentecost. What's that? Five Sundays to go? Okay, so that'll at least let us get ten messages in, which hopefully would be enough. If not, I'm going to have to plan it out ahead of time, and if not, we'll have some special Sunday afternoon sessions, because I want to get the whole series in before then. All right, so what we're doing, of course, is... Uh, Two, two uh, series is coterminously in the Eight Essential Elements of the Biblical Christian Gospel series. Uh, this is the 91st message in that, ses- in that series. And um, we are on element seven, which we call the, the, uh, the pattern of the first five steps into the kingdom. If you go through the book of Acts and you see uh, seven uh, or so uh examples of of the of the of of people coming to Christ there are times when people come to Christ and it doesn't give us very much but then there's other times when it gives us quite a bit and if you look at an overall pattern um i think it's clear that new testament christians went through receiving jesus christ which includes of course uh being born again and conversion confession repentance faith becoming a disciple uh, secondly, water baptism. Thirdly, baptized in the Holy Spirit. Fourthly, uh, deliverance from demonic uh, oppressions and demonic spirits, uh, which often brought emotional, spiritual, and physical and mental healings. And sometimes the healings were not necessarily related to demonic spirits. Sometimes they were. And then uh, uh, lastly, they started a New Testament lifestyle. And that New Testament lifestyle always had two directions, just like the cross has two directions. A lot of people use the cross to, to teach this uh, be, uh, because there's that vertical aspect between God and us, and every Christian should have spiritual disciplines of seeking God, reading His Word, uh, and other spiritual disciplines, drawing near to God with praise and prayer, fasting, etc. Uh, we praying in your in spiritual prayer language called speaking in tongues, all of these kinds of spiritual disciplines uh, help us, should be a daily thing for Christians, and help us uh, encounter the Lord every day. And, uh, you know, the goal being to walk in the Spirit eventually all the time, and not just uh, get stirred up in the Spirit a couple times a week at a worship meeting. Uh, it's a, you know, it's one of the reasons I wanted to have a Tuesday night meeting, and I'm so... So pleased the worship was so powerful and anointed today is uh, for a lot of young Christians, having around three or so worship meetings corporately a week it is a very good helper and stepping stone toward learning how to stay in the Spirit and empowered with the Spirit and, and all that every day, all the time. And that's a really important thing. You cannot listen, uh, live the Christian life if you don't get empowered by the Holy Spirit every day. The Christian life's not just difficult, it's impossible, and it takes uh, the power of the Holy Spirit every day flowing in, through your being. So um, so then, there, of course, the uh, horizontal dimension of, of a New Testament lifestyle was sharing that life in community. That includes being discipled, 
uh, per, what, personal pastoral care, uh, sharing life. You know, I always say, well, we kind of have this personal pastoral care thing in Grace Christian Fellowship that most churches don't have. However, there's a, uh, one of the most important things is we disciple each other in Christian community, hopefully throughout the whole week. You know, part of the New Testament lifestyle was they took their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. You know, hospitality, uh, mutual service, all these kind of things is part of our way of life. And uh, so we see these five steps as a pattern of get that should happen. Uh, biblically, they happen in the first week or so of being a Christian. However, uh, these days, you know, often people are more pre-evangelized than, than fully converted, and, and maybe some, many times they don't know that. Maybe sometimes they have to be with us a year or two before they even begin to realize that kind of thing. And uh, so, you know, it's not necessarily, I mean, it would be ideal to see people get that whole package the first week they're a Christian, but what's more important is they get that whole package, <laughs> even if it takes a year or two to get them through that. And so we've been uh, studying that, and we're particularly focusing right now on step three. Then we are going to do, which is getting baptized in the Holy Spirit. We are going to do a series on deliverance, step four, and healing, uh, which will also be engrafted into this eight essential series. And then we're going to do a, a little bit of a series on what is the church and what should be the church and what should be the church's way of life. Uh, and that will be... Uh, step five, which will, so we're kind of having three mini series right in a row in this element seven of the eight essential elements of the biblical Christian gospel. Um, so you see your notes, what we did two weeks ago. Uh, you know, we're kind of looking at, right now we're looking at the big picture. Why do we need a greater knowledge of and experience of the Holy Spirit? Many people refer to the Holy Spirit as the neglected or forgotten member of the Trinity in modern times, especially in Western Christianity and so forth. So a lot of these uh, first, at least through the seventh, this is the sixth, at least through chapter seven of this series, we are going to be looking at kind of a big picture of why do we need more experience of the Holy Spirit and more knowledge of the Holy Spirit than uh after that, we're going to kind of zoom in on the biblical model of, and see how, how, how we can begin to step into that. So uh, two days ago or three days ago on Sunday, we looked at the activities of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament. If you remember a week before that, we looked at the activities of the Holy Spirit in the, in the Old Testament. And we took away three points that all the gifts of the Spirit that are listed in the New Testament were experienced in the Old Testament, except speaking in tongues and interpretation of tongues. However, they were experienced less frequently, and they were experienced usually by sort of special people, especially priests, judges, prophets, and kings. And I put them in that order because those are the order in which they kind of are unveiled in the Old Testament. But Jesus is all those things. And the whole promises of God merge into Joel's 2.28 that uh, God will eventually pour out his spirit in all peoples and everyone will be Christ, priest, prophet, uh, prince, princess, whatever, and, uh, and so forth. So, uh, and that all God's people will prophesy 
and uh, be priest and, and move in the power of the Spirit. And that's what the New Testament is all about. That's the culmination of everything in the Bible flows into the day of Pentecost, and the church is supposed to be living the day of Pentecost all the time. All the spiritual warfare that goes on is to get us to underestimate all kinds of things about God and about His Word and to reduce His message so that, we're, that, so that that's not a normal way of life for us. So, um, last, Sunday when we looked at the New Testament uh, model, one of the things we emphasized is the Bible makes it very clear both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, that the New Testament is a better covenant. The New Covenant is a better covenant enacted on better promises with better provisions. So the modern heresy of expecting less of the Holy Spirit than what we even see in the Old Testament or in the life of the apostles or in the life of the early church is exactly that. It's actually a heresy. Uh, why should we expect God to do less in the New Testament than he did in the Old Testament? That just doesn't make any sense. And that comes from various paradigms of unbelief, and which we'll look at in, in detail next week. Next week we're going to actually look on at three modern perspectives on the Holy Spirit, uh, one of which is called cessationist. We're going to look at what uh, some I refer to as the third wave, and we're going to look at... Uh, a Pentecostal or charismatic perspective on the person and ministry of the Holy Spirit next week. Um, we also looked at the ministry of Jesus because he's the better Abraham, Isaac, Israel, Joseph, etc. And he is the, the priest, prophet, and king who announces, inaugurates, and fulfills uh, everything. The law, the covenants, he's the temple of God himself, etc. He is everything the scriptures speak about. And uh, by the Holy Spirit, Jesus repeated all the Old Testament miracles, but he added healing those who were born blind. We talked about the significance of that, so we'll skip that for tonight. And, we, uh, and he added casting out demons, which you don't see a lot of in the Old Testament. However, the Jewish uh, Pharisees and, and Levites and so forth, in the period between the Testaments, did begin to cast out demons. And that was part of regular Jewish life, but it wasn't very effective and so forth. That's why the people were astonished when Jesus, when they saw Jesus cast out demons. They said, what is this, a new teaching with authority? Even the demons obey him right away, which is, was in contrast to what, the, what their exorcists were experiencing. Their experience, exorcists were experiencing much more limited results. So, um, and then we notice that Jesus, by the Holy Spirit, more frequently and completely heals the sick, expels demons, prophesies, raises the dead, cleanses lepers, calms the waters, curses fig trees, walks on water, proclaims the gospel to the poor, and so forth, because he is the true rabbi of God and brings the proper under teaching of what the Moses and the prophets are about. Um, Lastly, we want to focus on that Jesus purposely is telling us that he's setting a model that is to be followed. He is the model for how to live the Christian life. 
1 John 2, 6, John says, If anyone claims he knows him, he ought also to walk in the same manner in which he walked. So think about that. Like most Christians who say, I know the Lord, I'm a pastor, I know the Bible, whatever, they are not expecting to walk anything like what Jesus walked. That, that is not a common expectation today. But it is in the Bible. So, <laughs> um, then lastly, we looked at Pentecost. And uh, if you go through John uh, 14, 15, and 16, what Je- and you go through uh, Luke 24 and Acts 1, what Jesus tells us Pentecost will bring, uh, it'll bring the continuing ministry of Jesus Christ. Jesus does the same things yesterday, today, and forever by the Holy Spirit through his church, and he clearly taught that that would be the ongoing uh, ministry of the Holy Spirit. That's in, of course, John seven thirty nine, John fourteen. Well, we could go. We've covered all those scriptures: John fourteen, fifteen, sixteen, Luke twenty four, Acts one. Lots of places. Uh, then, lastly, we talked about the nine gifts of the Holy Spirit as listed in First Corinthians twelve. Uh, just in case you don't know what those are, we will talk a little bit about them at the end of this series because getting baptized in the Holy Spirit is supposed to be a stepping stone to greater fruit of the Holy Spirit. It should actually bring greater testings because it because God wants to take you from the initial experience of being baptized in the Spirit through a, through a wilderness like Jesus went through to walking in the power of the Spirit and doing the kinds of things Jesus did. That's the normal progression of the Christian life. Um, So we looked at the structure of the book of Acts in Acts 2. In Acts 1, Jesus tells us when the Holy Spirit comes, we'll receive power to be his witnesses. And and the, the expected pattern is Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. Every church should have that vision that we are seeking God to walk in power together as a corporate community and to do the things Jesus did, to proclaim the gospel to the poor, to, uh, to cleanse lepers, to, to raise the dead, to heal the sick, to cast out demons. And we are to do it in Dayton, the Miami Valley, uh, Ohio, whatever, and the uttermost parts of the earth. And... Uh, that should be the vision of every New Testament church should be to uh, recover and restore the model uh, that we see in the in Jerusalem. And then the model is actually transposed and Antioch eventually trumps Jerusalem as the model church of the New Testament. Uh, and what happened in Antioch is, is what should happen in every church. So... Uh, that's where, by the grace of God, we hope we're going. So in Acts 1 and 2 tells us that. Because after Jesus talks about Jerusalem, Judea, and so forth, at the day of Pentecost, 17 nations are listed. Count them up. There's exactly 17. If you come up with 16, it's because you're not counting Israel. Um, There are 17. And that is representative in the Bible of the first fruits of all the nations. 
And then the Holy Spirit purposely takes us uh, through the Apostle Peter from chapter 2 till chapter 12, uh, doing all these kinds of things. And then uh, the Apostle Paul overlaps Peter a little bit because he, we first see him as Saul killing, you know, being participating in Stephen's stoning. Uh, didn't off not you know some of us had uh, just as bad a start. Well, maybe not. <laughs> Hopefully not. Hopefully none of you stoned any Christians before you before you uh, encountered Christ. But you probably did in your heart. At least I I hated Christians before I was a Christian. To be honest, I really disliked Christians. But uh, but I didn't kill any of them except in my heart. But uh, <laughs> so. Uh, you know, Paul gets in, encounters Jesus in Acts chapter 9, and from there we see Paul follow the same pe- pattern. And if you ever want to have a fun exercise, put a, make a document or something or a spreadsheet, put Peter on one side, Paul on the other side, and go through all the things by the Holy Spirit that they miraculously did and match them up. They're almost identical on purpose. They both raise the dead. They both cast out demons. They both heal lame people. Uh, Peter's shadow heals people. Paul's handkerchiefs have people. Don't you wish sometimes that certain things weren't in the Bible for the modern, because of the modern uh, faith message TV people? They sh- like It's like, Luke, you should have known that someday modern guys would exploit that. No. <laughs> anyway, but uh, Paul was so anointed that even his handkerchiefs... Uh, you know, would heal people. Um, that's a whole subject in itself that I we won't be going into at this time. Um, but look at the parallels. And uh, we are going to, then of course, Jesus uses the phrase, the promise of the Father in Acts 1. P, uh, Peter uses it. it. It appears twice in Acts 2. And... Uh, and so forth, and we're going to look at the concept of the promise of the Father from Genesis to Revelation in a whole message uh, coming up in this series. So we won't get into that for now. Now, tonight, what I want to do is look at the ongoing activities of the Holy Spirit after the New Testament canon. Nice. Those words are chosen carefully, as, as we'll see. So, uh, we looked at the activities of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament, then we looked at the New Testament. Now, one of the perspectives, which we'll talk about next week, that's in the church today and happens to be, unfortunately, in Western Christianity, it's, not, it's a dying perspective very quickly in Central America, South America, Africa, lots of places in the world. It is, you know, not a, uh, it is becoming a very minority perspective. But we, uh, Anvesh and I minister to people in India by uh, Google Hangouts, and we're... Uh, Dealing with a family where, uh, you know, one, uh, one, the husband has gotten baptized in the Holy Spirit and the, and the uh, wife has gone to a cessationist church all her life and she wants nothing to, t- she's not even open to studying who the Holy Spirit is and so forth. Uh, because the Holy Spirit doesn't do these things today. So the perspective of cessationism, there's two kind of, there's actually the old per- cessationist perspective and what I might call the new cessationist perspective. And we'll talk about that a little bit here soon. So the old cessationist perspective is that the gifts of the Holy Spirit that we see in 1 Corinthians 12 and the supernatural activities that we see in the, in the book of Acts through Peter, Paul, 
of course, others like Philip and so forth, um, that those were given just to spread the gospel, and as part of, they'll take, they'll use basically two verses, one, and that's all they use, and they take both of them out of their context quite badly. I don't want to get into this too much this week, but John 16, they say the Holy Spirit was given to lead into all the truth. So after the New Testament was written, he, he doesn't, you know, have that function anymore. And we'll, we'll, we'll see next week that he doesn't have the function of writing new scripture anymore. But the, the scripture always needs to be revealed to every generation and illuminated to every generation. And he still leads the church out of darkness into light and truth all the time. You need that in your life every day by the power of the Holy Spirit. So, um, the original cessationist perspectives uh, then also says that 1 Corinthians 13, when it says we know in part and we prophesy in part, that, 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 that the, the full came and the perfect came, not like the context would lead you to believe that when we go to be with Jesus is the obvious context, but they would actually say that was when the scripture was written. Now, so what they would say is that the miracles uh, that we see speaking in tongues, uh, interpretation of tongues, casting out of demons, words of knowledge, words of wisdom, gifts of healings, and so forth. Uh, we could list all nine of the gifts of the Spirit if we wanted. That all these ceased when the last apostles died and the New Testament was completely written. Uh, written. Right? So we're going to deal with that perspective in terms of Scripture next week. But this week, we're going to do it in, first, in regards to history. Because the problem is, that doesn't bear up with church history. Because there are tens of thousands of documented cases in every century of church history of these things happening and continuing to happen. They do seem to explode um, more, more at some times in some periods and through some movements than at others. There has been a remarkable increase of these things in the 20th and 21st century. However, they were everyday common experience to the Quakers, to the Moravian brothers, uh, to all sorts of movements at all sorts of times. So we're going to just look into that just a little bit. Now, because of that... One of the things that has become obvious to even the cessationist is that we can't argue that the Holy Spirit's gifts stopped with the apostles, but uh, they do seem to slow down a little bit uh, just prior to St. Augustine, and then they pick up in St. Augustine, so they, there's no, you know, this perspective doesn't really deal with that. But there's this now perspective that... Um, I actually gave a name to it. I just made it up this afternoon. Where did I put that? Somewhere in here. Um, I call it the new delayed cessationism. That's it. And what that, that perspective is, is that um, after the New Testament epistles and, and gospels and the book of Acts and so forth was written, Revelation, you know, uh, as, if you know anything about the development of the canon, I, I would say that all of those books were written before 70 A.D., I'm a very conservative person about that stuff. There are, uh, even among evangelicals and fundamentalists, and some of them would say that John, some of John's writings were written after 70 AD. Uh, John, 
there's a lot of speculation that John died approximately 90 AD or in the or in the early 90s AD. But um, you know what is what is clear is that miracles are still going on for several centuries after that. During the time when the scripture was first written, um, the books began to be distributed among churches throughout the Roman Empire and beyond. Thomas took the gospel all the way to India in the first century. If you go to India, there are certain places in India that they call themselves Thomas Christians. And they trace their roots back to the apostle Thomas uh, preaching the gospel to them in, in you know, approximately 60 A.D. Um, if you go to certain places in Finland and Norway and Sweden, they will claim that either James uh, or Andrew uh, made it to Finland, Sweden, and so forth. Uh, it's clear that some made it to England in the first century and so forth. So it, it does go beyond, of course, England was in the Roman Empire technically. The, uh, so it does go beyond the boundaries of the Roman Empire in the first century. Um, but all of these churches would seek to have copies not only of what we would call the Old Testament scriptures, which they just called the scriptures or the Jewish scriptures, the 39 books of the Old Testament that had been settled. You know, the 30, 39 books that we use today were settled uh, more than a century before Christ. As, as various Jewish leaders in the Sanhedrin said, these are the books we accept. These are the books that are considered apocrypha or extra not necessarily fully inerrant and infallible and inspired. Doesn't mean they're not valuable for history or whatever. But So that list of 39 books was accepted by Christ in his teachings and accepted by the early church. And therefore, they, they took it so seriously that lots of people spent, in many cases, spent every day of their whole lives making copies so more people would have copies. They didn't have like digital printers or they didn't have Gutenberg's press yet or anything like that. So they made hand copies and churches that were maybe a hundred miles apart would uh, have some fellowship with one another. And they'd say, well, we got a copy of the gospel of Mark. And they'd say, well, we got first Timothy, <laughs> you know, like, well, uh, they, it wouldn't be like they trade in the, or whatever, but they would make, well, we'll make you a copy of first Timothy. Uh, we sure appreciate you making us a copy of Mark and so forth. And so these were, these were spread around um, all the churches in the first century and most of the 27 books were accepted by almost all churches. Some of the books, beginning with Hebrews and going through Revelation in your New Testament, the, uh, the, the, the early church put them in the right order for a number of reasons. We could talk about that in, a, we, in some of our Bible classes. We talk about that. But um, Hebrews, James, uh, 1st, 2nd, 3rd, John, um, not so much 1st and 2nd Peter, uh, Revelation, there were occasionally a church that might not have, they might just have 22 of the 27 or 25 of the 27. And there were occasionally a church here or there that might say, well, we don't know if we should accept Hebrews as as authoritative scripture as the rest. But for the most part, the 27 books that we now use were accepted as early as 70 AD by almost every church. 
over time, 1 Corinthians 11, 19, Paul says, he's making a prophecy that kind of guided the church for the next five centuries or so. He said, but there must be heresies introduced in order that the way of the truth may become evident or obvious. So even as early as the later parts of the New Testament, false Christian ideas began to emerge within the church. And many scriptures in the New Testament warn us of that. There will also be false prophets that will arise among you and introduce destructive heresies and take away the sheep. Watch out for these and so forth. Much of Colossians and 1 John was actually, both of those were written to counteract kind of pre-Gnostic ideas that eventually developed into full-blown Gnosticism, but the seed ideas were already influencing the church. Just like today, much of evangelical Christian Christianity is neo-Gnostic. So, uh, hopefully this isn't boring to you. This is really important stuff. Um, very important, because it has to do with why you can rely on the books of the New Testament that you have. So, um, God ordained a process whereby certain people would challenge the authority of the Scripture. And it kind of came to a head with a heretic named Marcion. And Marcion um, was, uh, was a Gnostic, but he added his own particular twist in Gnosticism. And he basically came up with the idea that's very popular today that the God of the Old Testament is a bad, mean, judgmental law God, and the God of the New Testament is a loving, grace, peace, we, we like him kind of God. And therefore, Marcion rejected the whole Testament and most of the New Testament. And he, Paul is often called, referred to as the Apostle of Grace and the Apostle of the Holy Spirit. Marcion liked some of Paul's stuff, but he didn't like James at all. <laughs> he, you know, he didn't, uh, he didn't like the Gospels much because he didn't want to acknowledge that Jesus became a human being. So he didn't like the Gospels and Acts. And he had a list of about uh, 14 of the 27 New Testament books that he accepted parts of those books. Well, this forced the church to give a response. You know, one of the things that I hope you're equipped to do is sometimes you need to know how to witness to a Jehovah's Witness or a Mormon or, you know, the Way International or a Mooney or what have you. Uh, and one of the best ways to know how to do that is to defend the basic doctrines of Christology that we spent 31 weeks in this series on. Uh, because, for instance, the Christian Science Bible, they have gone through even their Greek uh, New Testament and taken out some of the most obvious references to the deity of Jesus, and they have their own Watchtower version. Hey, get me a cup of coffee, too, if there's coffee. Uh, Stephen can do it. It's okay. Is that just plain coffee? Or? Okay, not sugar. Well, get, get me a double cup, though, will you? Oh, actually, I got one over here, maybe, right? So, whatever. Just give me another cup, if you will. So, thank you. Um, where was I? Coffee. Love it. Um, thank you, Jesus, for coffee. Um, coffee and tea. Where would the world be without those things? The whole entire economy of the world would be very different. But uh, <laughs> the history of the world would have gone very different. Um there would have been no Boston Tea Party, for one thing. But, uh, 
Yeah, so back to heresies. <laughs> Thank you. So the church had to respond. Uh, many of you know who Athanasius was. Uh, both Anvesh and Deanna did reports on Athanasius in the church history class, right? And Athanasius, uh, his critics called him the Black Dwarf because uh, if you know anything about church history, it was actually the black African Christians that saved the church in the 3rd and 4th century. Very important fact to know because if you listen to hip-hop music and so forth, one of the major doctrines of African Americans today is that Christianity is a white man's religion. And actually, I'm sorry to tell you white people, but Christianity was predominantly a black man's religion in the 3rd and 4th century, and we wouldn't be here without the, the black Christians that saved the church in the 3rd and 4th century. But anyway, that notwithstanding, one of those was named Athanasius, and Athanasius, in one of his letters or encyclicals, endorsed the 27 books that we use today based on all he knew of church history up till then. And he was the first to kind of give an official uh, list of the 27 books. Later, councils, the Second Council of Nicaea and so forth, uh, two or three church councils took up the issue and certified the 27 books that we call the inspired, inerrant Word of God, New Testament, t today. And that was all settled in the 4th century. And so, you know, people who say, well, church history isn't important, and we just go by the, the New Testament church and the apostles and so forth, just don't know what they're talking about, to be honest. Um, God was, Jesus said, I will build my church, and he's been building it in every century, in every generation, in every time period, and so forth. And one of the things he did is he went through a process whereby the 27 books we use today were all written by apostles or disciples of apostles. And um, they all date back to before 70 A.D., but there was a process whereby the church confirmed their inerrancy and infallibility on, based on a number of important criteria that we teach on, in other series at other times. Now, that's kind of important because uh, one of the new theories that I, I uh, don't know what to call it, so I just called it the new delayed cessationism, one of the things that a lot of uh, cessationists have had to admit is there's too many miracles in the 2nd, 3rd, and 4th century to say that the gifts of the Spirit stop with the apostles. They're, you know, all these famous uh, people who basically saved the church also cast out demons, speak in tongues, prophesy, and do these kind of things. So... Uh, even the cessationist anymore can't say they, that the gifts of the Spirit stopped with the apostles. So they'll often say now, well, maybe it was when God confirmed the canon of Scripture, then we didn't need the Holy Spirit to guide us into all truth anymore. And then, therefore, you know, demons disappeared and <laughs> whatever, and, and we stopped doing all these things. Um, however, that, the problem with that is that's nonsense. And that's why the reason I went into that lengthy explanation is we're going to see, uh, starting with Augustine of Hippo tonight, Augustine was a, uh, um, he had a Christian mother, 
Uh, he had a pagan father. Happens a lot, especially in modern times. Um, and Augustine became uh, a wild and crazy kind of guy. And he uh, had a concubine, which was very unheard of for those days, for like 14 years. And he was an unbeliever. And he became very proficient in philosophy and, and uh, rhetoric and, and all this kind of stuff. And he moved to Rome and, and taught philosophy and so forth and, and had followings. And then he came to under, uh, hear about a guy named Ambrose, who was the bishop of Rome at the time, and was, um, or no, I'm sorry, he was the bishop of Milan, I think, near Rome, a, a city-state in Italy. And um, Augustine said, heard about what a great speaker he was, so he started going to hear Ambrose. And in listening to Ambrose's sermons, he became a Christian. Now, when Augustine first became a Christian, uh, he uh, changed his whole life around. For one thing, he actually uh, had disciples, and he had a, an arrangement because of his former past with uh, lust and his, his ongoing problems with lust all his life. He actually had his disciples uh, on staff to make sure he was never alone at all with a woman ever. He felt like he needed that. So, uh, Billy Graham did a similar thing. And uh, not a bad policy if, if needed. And uh, so uh, uh, Augustine becomes a very famous Christian. He wrote the Confessions. He wrote the City of God. But Augustine originally actually buys into a perspective that was starting to develop called cessationism. He thought that God doesn't do these things anymore. And so uh, he taught that for some time and believed that for some time. Then he decided to make a study of it both scripturally and from history. And he began to realize there are still miracles going on in churches throughout the Roman, Roman Empire. And he changed his opinion. And in his classic book, The City of God, which is 22 books, they, they were so big that they didn't call them chapters, they called them books within a book. And uh, kind, of, kind of like our Bible has, the, you know, 66 books. And uh, it's about 1,200 pages, and it documents hundreds of miracles, many of which happened in Augustine's church after he gave up being a cessationist, including breast cancers healed, people raised from the dead, and etc. So um, the problem with all this is that um, we're going to, at the end, we're going to deal with uh, the fact that it's therefore becomes irrational to say God didn't do these things, and I'm going to talk about why at the conclusion. So in the meantime, I'm going to mention the following. Look at Roman numeral four, three quarters of the way down the page. If you want to make a study of this, of the ongoing activities of the Holy Spirit uh, after the apostles through the centuries, all the way up to the modern Pentecostal and charismatic movements, I would recommend a book called Miracles and Manifestations of the Holy Spirit in the History of the Church. We have copies in the back, and it's edited by Jeff Doles. Now, that word edited is very important. I actually made sure I could fit it in there because the past teaching, just I had to leave out the word edited to finish, fit it on a page. So I made it a type size that would fit. Um, and here's why it's important. He's not writing any of these things. These are just documents from church history. 
their letters from one Christian to another, their church history books, their uh, guys writing accounts of what they saw, and so forth. And all he's doing is compiling them. You could actually say he's the compiler more than the editor. Now, he will sometimes uh, have a, a few sentences of introduction to who the person was and, and what, uh, what his writings are saying. So uh, in that respect, he's more of an editor than just a compiler. Um, so I highly recommend that you, that you get the book and keep it on your coffee table or in your bathroom, if you're the kind of person that reads on the throne. Uh, <laughs> I can't do that, but some people love doing that. And, uh, and uh, you know, uh, I used to read in the bathtub, but it's so, you got to really be disciplined not to let the, page, the book get wet. But uh, <laughs> I was always thinking there should be laminated books. The whole book is waterproof. But uh, um, not a good thing to do with your computer, probably. Uh, <laughs> read my Kindle books in the bathtub. Oops, drop the... <laughs> oops. Bzz. All right, so uh, anyway, if you don't want to buy the book, I am told that Google Reads, which I don't know how to use, has more free... You can read, you know, like how Amazon has this... Uh, what do they call it? Look Inside for free or whatever. So Amazon has so much of this book, Look Inside for free that you don't need to buy the book. Just read what you can read for free. And uh, I'm told, was it, actually, I think it might have been Amber that told me originally that Google Reads has even more. Oh, no, it was Gwen Colton, actually. Anyway, so uh, I'm told Google Reads has even more that you can read for free. But all I'm wanting you to do is to spend an hour on this project sometime and see that there are bona fide testimonies by Christians that, that all Christians respect, that we're going to deal with that at the end. That's important point to know, though. These, often these are Christians that throughout the centuries, other Christians have said, yeah, you got to read that person's writings. Their, their writings are great. But then what modern people want to do is say, we'll like uh, Gregory of Nyssa's writings, except the miracles part. And you, the problem is these... You can't do that. You know, you can't say, uh, well, I, I actually used to have a man in the church I planted that said, wow, this church is, I love the worship, the community. I don't know where you get those insights and so forth. If you could just get rid of that speaking in tongues part, this would be a great church. And I, I said, well, then we wouldn't have the insights either. But, uh, <laughs> You know, because they come from the Holy Spirit, and speaking in tongues is a way we stay filled with the Spirit. So they're kind of uh, inextricably intertwined. So I would encourage you to, to uh, at least, even if you don't want to buy the book and keep it on your uh, coffee table or something and occasionally read a little, because what I do is I actually bounce around this book once in a while. gives me a feel for church history. Uh, how how Christians in different centuries approach the Holy Spirit and and, about, and miracles because it's quite uh, that's quite illuminating and uh, from time to time I read a little bit of this book here and there once in a while and so um, this is Google Reads summary of the book at the bottom of page one I'm going to read it the Holy Spirit has never left the church. 
let's start reading that again. <laughs> the Holy Spirit has never left the church, and neither have his supernatural gifts and manifestations. They have been available in every century, from the days of the apostolic fathers to the desert monks of Egypt and Syria, to the missionary outreaches of the Middle Ages and to the Reformation era and the awakenings and revivals that followed to the Pentecostal explosion of the 20th century and the increase of signs and wonders in the 21st. Now, that phrase, the apostolic fathers, if you have never taken any church history, refers to um, all the church leaders beginning with the death of the last apostles People like Polycarp, who was actually an Ignatius of Antioch, people who were actually discipled by John and so forth, but outlived John, is the last apostle, all the way through Augustine and uh, in, in people of Augustine's time. So these are church leaders in the 2nd, 3rd, 4th, and 5th century, while the church was in the process of canonizing the scriptures and writing the creeds and defending and defining the faith that had been given to us, as Jude 3 says, once and for all by the apostles. But that faith had to be fought for for a few centuries because it was attacked from within and without, and God ordained those attacks so that the truth would survive uh, through the ecumenical councils, the creeds, and the canonization of the New Testament. And you can't reject those things as unimportant and actually, otherwise, you can't really say, I believe the Bible. You, you, I mean, everyone does that today, but that's not uh, coming from uh, understanding what the Scripture is actually saying about Scripture. So, that's important. The Apostolic Fathers uh, include some of the people we're going to look at tonight, but you would start with uh, especially Polycarp, who was a disciple of John, and you might take it at least through St. Augustine, um, who again is important because Augustine documents many miracles uh, approximately a hundred years after the canonization of Scripture. Does that make sense? All right, second paragraph. Miracles, healings, deliverances, prophecies, dreams, visions, and even raising the dead have all been in operation throughout the history of the church. Anglicans, Baptists, Catholics, Congregationalists, Lutherans, Methodists, Moravians, Presbyterians, Quakers, and many others have experienced the supernatural gifts and workings of the Spirit over the century. That's very important as well. This, this, these have not been limited to uh, small sections of the church. There was a time when no Baptist would say be against miracles. Uh, now most, most Baptists are. Miracles and Manifestations of the Holy Spirit in the History of the Church, that's the name of the book, gathers up numerous accounts from a variety of historical sources and provides a handy reference to those who want to know more about, one, how the church has understood and operated in the gifts and manifestations of the Holy Spirit at various times in history, two, why the gifts and miracles were more frequently in manifestation in some eras than in others, three, the many ways the church has ministered in healing and deliverance, and four, how the Holy Spirit manifested in great revivals, how the river of gifts and miracles continues today. Again, that's a summary of the book from Goodreads. Now, flipping over, um, if those of you who've, who've actually uh, lead people through the 
the former Holy Spirit series that we did that was four chapters, or have at least been through it enough that you remember it, remember that we had a chapter 2B, which was called the Activities of the Holy Spirit after the Apostles. And I've always had sort of a policy that the teachings are only as long as what I can uh, fit on the front and back of a page. So I kind of decided a long time ago that when we redid this, we would do about six pages of examples. But again, the reason I spent so much time just telling you you could go and do the free look insides, anybody can just pull this book up in Amazon or Google Reads and read. Uh, they give you several hundred for free. Or you can buy the book. I, it's not the kind of book I would recommend you read cover to cover. And some people are very diligent and good readers. Like my wife, she probably would read it from cover to cover. She may have already. I should ask her. Um, I know I've seen her reading it quite a few times. Um, but even if you just bounce around to different centuries and different movements and so forth, it'll help you understand what we're trying to go for tonight. All those things about how the Holy Spirit has done these things throughout the centuries. So I'm, and I'm going to talk more about that in the conclusion and make sure you're crystal clear on why that is important. That itself is a dagger to cessationist thinking completely. And in fact, um, some of you know our testimony of in the, uh, in the first campus ministry we, in Bowling Green, we felt led of the Lord to start crying out to God every night in our hour prayer meeting before the teams went out to share. We felt called of God to start praying, God, pour your Holy Spirit out on the whole campus. I found out many years later that there were Christians as early as the 1950s uh, on Bowling Green campus, because I met some of them years later, and, uh, and they were praying for God to do that at Bowling Green State University 20 years before it started happening. And, um, well, 15 years before it started happening, approximately. And... Uh, you know, which is a lesson in itself about persevering in prayer. But in any case, um, as we cried out this, God did many supernatural things, one of which was there was a Church of Christ non-instrumental, which is probably the most legalistic, performance-based, sectarian uh, group of Christians that are still within the bounds of Orthodox Christianity that you can find. And uh, there's even jokes where, you know, they, when you're going through heaven, they go, shh, this is the, where the Church of Christ people are. Don't be, keep it down because they think they're the only people here. But, you know, so unfortunately, the Church of Christ non-instrumental tends to be a very, we're the only ones who got it right. And, uh, you know, I remember we were having a car wash once and a lady told me, you know, there's only two churches in the Bible, the Church of Christ and the Church of God. I'm like, I responded a little bit like Melody just did. But I don't know if I did that in front of her. Hopefully I didn't. But anyway, I was like, holy cow, what, like, whew, that's some reasoning. But, um, but actually that's taught, that they're actually taught that uh, because the, the 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 epistles say to the church of Christ in so and so, so place and to the church of God in this person's house, that if the church isn't called the church of Christ or the church of God, then it's not a church. <laughs> so and then there's of course there's a whole there's actually a whole cult called uh, Witness Lee and the what do they call their uh, 
what's Witness Lee's thing? Oh, I almost said it. The local church. And they basically say because the churches were in Ephesus and so forth, uh, if it's not called the Church of East Dayton or the Church of Fairborn or the Church of, you know, uh, Vandalia, that it's not a church. And that only the churches that are called that are the true Christians and everybody else is going to hell. <laughs> there really are people who believe that. And uh, we're in big trouble. Grace Christian Fellowship. We don't have Christ, God, or East Dayton in the name. Actually, legally, we are the Grace Christian Fellowship of Dayton, Inc. But <laughs> uh, anyway, what silliness. Um, so, um, I had intended to get this out to six pages. I apologize. Um, I... Um, took too many phone calls this afternoon that I shouldn't have taken. So, um, Justin Martyr is the only one I've added to the old one. I meant to add a whole bunch of them. Uh, did someone do a report on Justin Martyr in the church history class? You did Justin Martyr, right? You want to cover this part? <laughs> so, uh, of, of course, uh, many of you know what a martyr is. Probably a lot of people don't know that Jesus says in Acts 1.8, that when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you shall receive power and you shall be my martyrs. Because the Greek word martyrion originally meant to testify or to bear witness. Uh, uh, like, like we're experiencing a lot in the computer revolution, uh, words change in meaning over culture. Back in the 1890s, the gay 90s were about a happy time. <laughs> and uh, and uh, words change a lot over time and get borrowed and stolen and misused and changed in their definition. And uh, martyr uh, became, began to be used for those who stayed faithful in their testimony or their witness of Christ, even to the point of death. So beginning, um, beginning with Pentecost... Jewish uh, people who rejected Jesus began to persecute the church, uh, and they would even send delegations to chase the apostles around and stir up riot, uh, riots and so forth. Paul was stoned and left for dead. He received the same uh, lashing that Christ received three times. Um, and you know that if you ever saw the movie The Passion of the Christ, that's pretty accurate to what a Roman beating was because the reason they stopped at 39 is it, uh, it it was kind of a idea that 40 would kill you and they you weren't allowed to kill the person by the whipping you had to keep them alive enough to still crucify them and um, Paul received that whipping you know three times and so and Jewish people uh, persecuted the church from Pentecost all the way uh, to the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. However, in the Roman Empire, Jews were not allowed to, to kill a person, uh, technically, and they weren't allowed to even advocate that we should stone this person to death or they should be crucified or executed. That's why they're trying, they try to trap Jesus with the woman caught in adultery. They think they've got him in a perfect trap because if he says, uh, executor, which the law of Moses says to do, um, 
course, they were hypocrites because it takes two to commit adultery as far as I've ever understood. And where was the guy? So, I mean, it's obvious that it was a sham in the first place. And, uh, and uh, why do women always get the worst deal with, with, with abuse of people? Women always get the, best, the worst deal with legalism and abuse and everything else. But um, anyway, um, they thought they had Jesus trapped. Because if he says, follow the law of Moses and stone her to death, they would have turned him into the Romans who would have crucified him for that. They thought they had him in an escape. And if, they, if he said, uh, don't crucify her, they would have said, uh, see, he teaches against the law of Moses. How can he be a true rabbi or prophet from God? They thought they had him in an unsolvable quandary. And he got a word of wisdom from the Holy Spirit and said, Okay, whoever's the without the f- sin, cast the first stone. And I wish I was kind of there sometimes on that one. Can't wait to see it in heaven because I think I'd be like, yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. You know? First, the first time I ever saw the Ten Commandments when when uh, Pharaoh Pharaoh goes, Moses, God is God. I actually jumped up and kicked my chair all the way across the room and went, yeah. <laughs> Sorry about the chair, but uh, <laughs> all right, so. Uh, Anyway, so the Jews persecuted the Christians, but they weren't allowed to kill them. Although they came near killing Paul a few times, and they had plots to have Paul killed, because uh, they were not exactly law-abiding. <laughs> uh, that The trial of Jesus proves that, as did the trial of Stephen. They stoned Stephen to death. They weren't allowed to do that. If that had come to the attention of Pilate and so forth, they would have actually been arrested for that. So, starting in 64 AD, an emperor named Nero, who interestingly his name adds up to 666, uh, because he's who that the revelation is actually talking about, um, Nero begins a massive persecution of the Christians throughout the Roman Empire. But he's allowed to kill them. And so that persecution came and went in various intensities up until the great persecution of Diocletian that ended around 311, 313 A.D., right before Constantine made Christianity legal. So for um, two hundred and forty-nine years, it was illegal to be a Christian to the point of you would be executed for it if you got caught. So Justin Martyr becomes a very important figure in church history. That's why I included him, because he actually gave his name to the concept of of martyrs. Um, He lived from 100 AD to 165. Another reason I included him, because he's clearly after the apostles all died. He did not know any of them personally like Polycarp did or so forth. He was an early Christian apologist. Hopefully you know by now that that means a defender of the faith because there were uh, two different kinds of attacks against Christianity after the apostles died that the church dealt with for the first four or five centuries. One was the attacks of pagans saying why Christianity's not true. I just read a a book a few months ago that was written by various pagans saying why Christianity wasn't true in the 1st, 2nd, 3rd, and 4th century. 
Uh, and they thought, they believed very bizarre stuff. Like if you ever read any of it, it uh, you know, they thought that Christians were cannibals and all kind of stuff. So um, Justin Martyr is, is known as one of the apostolic fathers. Therefore, he's a saint in the Catholic Church. Um, and he was martyred in uh, persecutions in Rome, just like Paul and Peter, but almost exactly 100 years after them. So therefore, if cessationism is true, then he couldn't have written the things we're about to read. That's the little, I give you a lot of backgrounds, for, probably more than you asked for, <laughs> or more than you'd want. Um, so, so uh, in one of the sections of, of the book, it's called Healing and Exorcism. Here's what Justin Martyr has to say about that. And now you can learn from what is under your own observation for number, numerous uh, demoniacs throughout the whole world in your city, many of our Christian men exercising them in the name of Jesus Christ, who was crucified under Pontius Pilate, have healed and do heal, rendering helpless and driving the possessing devils out of the men, though they could not be cured by all the other exorcists and those who used incantations and drugs." By the way, in the Roman world, there were both Jewish exorcists and pagan exorcists who uh, had very limited results, but believed in demons and tried to cast them out, just like we have that today, actually. There's many non-Christians who believe in demons and try, and try to cast them out using various types of witchcraft, using uh, what Jesus said couldn't be done, Satan can't cast out Satan. And that's why they don't have good results. <laughs> so... Um, he also says, For we do continually beseech God by Jesus Christ to preserve us from the demons which are hostile to the worship of God in whom we of old time served. I, one of the things you'll notice um, when people have really big demonic problems, uh, they often do not like to be around worship. And often, even if they do come to church and worship, they won't really worship. They'll kind of sit there quietly. They, they, they won't feel much power and joy. Um, you know, you, you wouldn't catch them act, actually singing along or lifting their hands or, or anything like that. Uh, worship, in, in demon spirits do not like you to become a worshiper. And he's making that point. Um, again, so we continually beseech God by Jesus Christ to preserve us from the demons which are hostile to worship of God and whom we of old time served in order that after our conversion by him to God, we may be blameless. For we call him helper and redeemer, the power of whose name even the demons do fear. And at this day, and, and to this day, when they are exercised in the name of Jesus Christ, crucified under Pontius Pilate, governor of Judea, they are overcome. By the way, often the early Christians would say Jesus Christ crucified under Pontius Pilate, which uh, is in the New Testament and became part of the creeds, because they were making the point that went against all Roman philosophies and Greek philosophies at the time, that Jesus became a human being and lived at a certain point in time. And these are documentable things. This is a historically true uh, account. So they often threw in that he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. That means if you doubt that, you can go check it. There's Roman records that say so. Um, where were we? The governor, Pontius Pilate was the governor of Judea, and they are overcome. The demons are overcome. And thus it is manifest to all that his father has given him so great power, by virtue of which demons are subdued to his name, 
into the dispensation of his suffering. Uh, later, again, in other words, he said, I give unto you power to tread on serpents and on scorpions, and on, I don't actually know what those are, scolopendras, and uh, on all the might of the enemy. And now we who believe in our Lord Jesus, who was crucified under Pontius Pilate, when we exercise all demons, exercise, of course, means cast out, all demons and evil spirits have them subjected to us. Uh, later, he says in his dialogue to Trifo, uh, the, all the, most of these are from the di- first or second dialogue to Trifo. But, um, and again, in other words, he said, uh, where are we? Or, I'm sorry, for the prophetical gifts remain among us even to the present time. Now that's interesting, right? Because, of course, that's one of the biggest principles of cessationism is that prophecy ceased with the writing of the New Testament. Justin Martyr saying they didn't. So you can't have it both ways. Either he's a fool and deceived, or prophecy hadn't ceased in his time. This is what we're really trying to get at tonight. Um, next, for every demon when exercised in the name of this very Son of God, who is the firstborn of every creature who became man by the Virgin, who suffered and was crucified under Pontius Pilate by your nation, who died, who rose from the dead and ascended into heaven, is overcome and subdued. Now it is possible to see amongst us women and men who possess gifts of the Spirit of God. Notice women and men. Gregory the Wonder Worker, I chose him because he has a great name. Uh, <laughs> no, now we're moving into the third century. You know, now we're, um, what is it? Um, We're over 140 years after the last New Testament book was written. Gregory the Wonder Worker was converted to Christ under the teaching of Origen. Some of you know him from the church history class. And, and there's a famous quote, has anybody re- ever read all that Origen wrote? He, he was a voluminous writer. <laughs> uh, if you were to set about to read all of Origen's writings, you would uh, have to be a pretty fast reader and stay motivated or quite a bit of time. Um, and uh, and Gregory the Wonder Worker later became Bishop of Neo Caesarea. Uh, this is a section of the book called Abundance of Signs, Wonders, and Miracles. Because uh, again, with some of these guys like Justin Martyr, I didn't I I didn't have time to get it right. So there was two or three sections on Justin Martyr and two or three sections on Gregory the Wonder Worker. But in the section titled Abundance of Signs, Wonders, and Miracles about Gregory the Wonder Worker, it says this. Where shall I rank the great Gregory in the words uttered by him? Now, again, this is not um, Jeff Dole saying this. That he is taking this from the quotes of Christian writers of the time period. Um, and that one I did not, did I document where that one came from? The book does in all cases. Um, again, I kind of was a little hurried today, and this is not where I'd like it to have been. Uh, but where shall I rank the great Gregory in the words uttered by him? For by the fellow working of the Spirit, the power which he had over demons was tremendous. And so gifted was he by the grace of the word for obedience to the faith among the nations, that although only 17 Christians were handed over to him, he brought the whole people alike in town and country through knowledge of, to God. In other words, when he assumed his bishopric, there was only 17 people in the city that were Christians. And by the end of his bishopric, the whole city was Christian. Um, that's pretty good results. 
we'll talk about needing a bigger building. Uh, he too, by Christ's mighty name, commanded even rivers to change their course and caused a lake which afforded a ground which afforded a ground of quarrel to some covetous brethren to dry up. Moreover, his predictions of things to come were such as in no wise to fall short of those great prophets. Uh, those of the great prophets. To recount all his wonderful works in detail would be too long a task. By the superabundance of gifts wrought in him by the Spirit, in all power and, all, and in signs and in all marvels, he was styled a second Moses by the very enemies of the church. Thus in all that he through grace accomplished, alike by word and deed, a light seemed ever to be shining, token of the heavenly power from the unseen which followed him. There are many testimonies of Greg, the wonder worker, doing these kind of things from various sources, by the way. And so, um, and this is not the Apostle Paul. This is, you know, this is uh, another church elder because uh, the, the, uh, the word bishop was originally meant overseer or elder in the New Testament church. In the New Testament, gradually it, uh, the churches began to have a plurality of elders and the head elder of the church was often called the, the Episcopos, whereas the other elders were called the Presbyteros. And um, that came out of church history. We follow a Presbyterian form of church government, as in the New Testament, but that's another issue in itself. Um, Augustine of Hippo, who we've talked about already, so we'll just go right into it. The teaching of Augustine, Bishop of Hippo, has greatly influenced the theology of both Catholicism and the Reformation Church. That's important, and, and what he doesn't say is also Eastern Orthodoxy. Augustine is probably the last of the apostolic fathers that the three major sections of Christianity, the Roman Catholics, the Eastern Orthodox, and the, and the Protestants, would all say, you should read Augustine, he's our guy. <laughs> and uh, uh, after that, there are very few church uh, leaders that all three of those groups would say, you ought to read this guy. He's, his stuff is tremendous, but... Um, in a lot of ways, it's been said that um, the Reformation was the triumph of, of uh, Augustine's doctrines of salvation over Augustine's doctrines of the church. And uh, because Augustine basically represented Paul accurately in both subjects. And uh, so that's kind of an interesting observation. So uh, Augustine wrote, of course, his classic work, The City of God, and he uh, records numerous miracles in there. Here, here are a few. Even now, miracles are wrought in the name of Christ. We cannot deny that many miracles are wrought to confirm that one grand and health-giving miracle of Christ's ascension to heaven with the flesh in which he rose. In other words, these miracles confirm that Jesus rose from the dead and ascended into heaven. That's Augustine sees all miracles as affirming that Christ rose from the dead and ascended into heaven. The miracles were published that might produce the miracles were published that they might produce faith. In other words, that's the reason he he kept the accounts of them and had he actually had a whole staff of people documenting miracles around the Roman Empire and, and keeping accounts of them. For even now miracles are wrought in the name of Christ, whether by his sacraments or by the prayers or relics of his saints. Uh, here's one story. In Essentia, this is interesting if you know anything about breast cancer and the, and the state of it today in terms of medicine. In, a, in Essentia, which uh, is a Christian, 
often the Christians, when they were converted, would take, take biblical words and turn them into names. Like Anastasia Alethea, the Hagar's daughter, is uh, Alethea, is, Anastasia I should say, Alethea is the Greek word for truth, and Anastasia for resurrection. And that's becoming, that's kind of a, con- so Innocentia is, was not actually a name until the Christians turn it, turned it into a name. Gregory is the same case. Gregory just means to rise from the dead, to be watchful, to be eternally minded or pers- in your perspective, to be prudent and have a broad perspective. And it's a New Testament word that, that pagans, when they had a, a name that was kind of demonic, would give themselves a new Christian name. That still happens all over the world today, right? <laughs> Sam, you took the name Samuel because it's common in pagan lands uh, when someone becomes a Christian to take a Christian name. Uh, and there's lots of names. Like if my if I if I was a kid named Damian and I became a Christian, not Damian, but if I was Damian, I would change my name because it's the Greek word for demon, All right? So I might make it Gregory or something, but <laughs> or some something more Christian. John, Joseph, Joshua, something. Uh, so anyway. Um, in a sense, she has breast cancer. So this is pretty cool stuff. If you, um, in the same city of Carthage lived Innocentia, a very devout woman of the highest rank in the state. She had cancer in one of her breasts, a disease which, as physicians say, is incurable. Ordinarily, therefore, they either amputate or so separate from the body the member on which the disease has ceased or that the patient's life may be prolonged a little. Though death is inevitable, even if somewhat delayed, they abandon all remedies following, as they say, the advice of Hippocrates, uh, Hippocratic Oath, and so forth. This, the lady we speak of, had been advised by a skillful physician who was intimate with her family, and she took herself to God alone by prayer. Isn't that interesting? Because we haven't really gone much further with breast cancer to this day. Now, there are more and more treatments coming out that don't involve a mastectomy. but That's another whole issue. But it's interesting that things haven't changed as much as you think sometimes. On the approach of Easter, she was instructed in a dream to wait for the first woman that came out from the baptistry after being baptized. The early church in the 4th century would have all the all new Christians would be baptized on Easter Sunday. And uh, it was a big de- deal and a big event. Um, so... Um, Let's see. So, after being baptized, and to ask her to make the sign of Christ upon her sore. So, so did she did so, and was immediately cured. The physician who had advised her to apply no remedy if she wished to live a little longer, when he had examined her after this and found that she who, or on his former examination, was afflicted with that disease, was now perfectly cured. Eagerly asked her what remedy she used. Anxious, as we may well believe, to discover the drug which should defeat the decision of Hippocrates. In other words, heal breast cancer. But when she told him what had happened, he is said to have replied with religious politeness, though with a contemptuous tone and an expression which made her fear he would utter some blasphemy against Christ. I thought you would make some great discovery to me. She, shuddering at his indifference, quickly replied, what great thing was it? for Christ to heal a cancer who raised one who had been four days dead. In other words, she's saying, if Jesus rose Lazarus from the dead, he could heal a cancer. Um, For when I saw in our own times frequent signs of the presence of divine power similar to those 
which had been given of old, I desired that narratives might be written, judging that the multitude should not remain ignorant of these things. Even now, therefore, many miracles are wrought. The same God who wrought these we read of still performing them by whom we will, by whom he will and as he will. In other words, he'll do them. And it's kind of interesting that this in essentia was told basically to, to have the 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 a lady who came out of the baptism make the sign of the cross because that means she would have been a new believer, not like a great wonder worker. Right? So Bernard of Clairvaux, one of my favorites. Uh, some of you probably know who um, Richard Foster is. He wrote a much-used book called Celebration of Discipline. Anybody familiar with it? And um, Richard Foster also wrote a book that I love and use called Devotional Classics. And he has a lot from Bernard of Clairvaux. So my point being, Richard Foster is probably one of the 20 to 50 most respected evangelical voices today in the world. Uh, he was the pastor of Dallas Willard, who died a few years ago, and, and we use Dallas Willard's uh, articles and books. Um, Richard Foster uh, thinks Bernard of Clairvaux's devotions uh, are some, something every Christian should read. But, he, but Richard Foster doesn't mention his miracles. And I'm saying you can't have it both ways when you read this. He lived in the 11th century. He was an abbot of the monastery of Clairvaux. That means he was the head leader of a monastery. And uh, monasteries were not as, you know, a lot of Protestants are anti-monastery, but monasteries converted Europe, educated the poor. Uh, Monasteries changed the world for several centuries. Uh, They became problematic in some ways, but uh, some of them did, some did not. He was an abbot at the monastery at Clairvaux, which is a city in France, and the primary instrument who reformed the Cistercian order. That's a uh, type of monk. We have on this subject an unexceptional testimony in the Book of the Miracles of St. Bernard written by Philip, a monk of Clairvaux. The intention had been to constitute a committee of testimony to hand down to succeeding ages an account of the facts, unimpeachable on account of the high character of the witnesses, their personal knowledge of the actions done, many of them in their own presence. So one of the monks decided to basically keep a journal of Bernard's healings. Uh, This is under a section called Many Are Healed Every Day. Day by day, the number of cures grew and multiplied until it reached, we are told, an average of 30 daily, and once it rose to 36. As the traveler approached this or that town, he would hear church bells ringing out of a merry peal and the people singing, Lord, have mercy upon us. Christ have mercy upon us. These sounds were well understood by those at a distance to mean that Barnard had just performed another miracle. Here is a short extract from the narrative before us, which embraces hundreds of causes. They would actually, Bernard would travel to hundreds of monasteries throughout France, which was still largely pagan. Um, And they would ring the church bells for two or three days before he came, letting the whole countryside know Bernard is coming to preach here. Uh, much like we do with advertising, t- you know, evangelists coming to this or that town or, you know, Billy Graham Crusades used to have great preparation. I, you know, I, my parents were part of preparing for Billy Graham to come to Cleveland for over two years. And um, so uh, when Bernard would come, he would preach and they said uh, the claims are that about 30 people a day would be healed uh, after he prayed preached, he would pray, pray for people. The blind and lame are healed on 
Hill by the laying on of hands is the next section. When Bernard was seated in the guest house of a certain man, blind with one eye, came in and falling on his knees, begged his mercy. Bernard made the sign of the cross with his holy fingers and touched the blind eye and immediately received sight and the man returned thanks to God. About an hour afterwards, as it was getting dusk, the holy man man went out to lay hands on the sick who were waiting before the doors. The first who was cured was a boy blind with the right eye, who on shuttering the left eye, uh, which, would, which alone he had seen previously, discerned all things clearly and told at once what everything was with, which he showed to him. And again at the same place, a little girl who had a weakness in her feet and had been lame from birth was healed by the imposition of hands, and her mother bounded for joy that now, for the first time, she saw her child standing and walking. Um, one of the things you have to deal with, by the way, if you're going to read this book, is that um, modern Christians would, you know, because we're, again, affected by the modern evangelicalist ideas, like even if we would accept healings, we wouldn't like something like the sign of the cross and so forth. One of, you know, like, deal with this. In John 5, in the Bible, it says that an angel of the Lord used to stir up the waters and the first person who got in was healed. Right, and one of the things that happens a lot in church history, this, uh, for for instance, at Saint at Augustine's church, Pete, uh, they they brought the bones of 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 Stephen, the first martyr, uh, to Augustine's church, and people were raised from the dead who they they uh, had the they had the dead person touch the casket of the bones, and the person was raised from the dead. Many people were healed that way. If you have problems with that, I would just consider ask you to consider that even if you study like what Oral Roberts did and, and who was one of the biggest names in what was called the, uh, what was the movement, uh, the 40s and 50s, uh, the Latter-day Reign movement, um, there, there was always a thing you did to touch or something to release your faith. And the way they thought, that was a time when symbolism wasn't, where they weren't anti-symbolism and they understood communion and lots of things a lot deeper than what we understand today. And they basically associated Stephen, it wasn't Stephen worship or, or prayer to Stephen or anything at that time, actually. They associated it with his faithfulness and witness to Christ. That's why they revered Stephen so much, because he was faithful unto Christ, even to death, uh, you know, on, which Simon Peter eventually was, and so forth. All right, moving on, because we're out of time. George Fox, the founder of the Quakers. Um, if One of the reasons I included this is one of the most dear things to my heart is the abolitionist movement. Um, when... when uh, when African-American slavery uh, started, it was the first racial kind of slavery and the most evil kind of slavery the world had ever seen in many ways. And so um, nobody in Europe was crying out against it until the Quakers started to cry out against it. And the Quakers started and, and continued to lead the abolitionist movement until eventually uh, it was successful. Um, George Fox started the Quakers and uh, wrote a very famous book called Fox's Book of Martyrs that documents all the people who died for Christ during the Reformation times. 
a young boy miraculously healed, and there was a boy lying in the cradle, which they rocked, about 11 years old, and, and he was grown almost double. And I cast my eye upon the boy. Notice that uh, the boy probably had cerebral palsy. Um, that's near to home for us. And seeing he was dirty, I bid the lass wash his face and his hands and get him up and bring him to me. So she brought him to me, and I bid her take and wash him again, for she had not washed him clean. Then I was moved of the Lord to lay my hands upon him and speak to him, and so bid the last take him again and put on his clothes, and after we passed away. And sometime after I called at the house, I met his mother, but did not light. In other words, she didn't recognize him. Oh, stay, she says, and, or he didn't stay. And have a meeting at our house, for all the country is convinced by the great miracles that was done by thee upon my son. For we had carried him to wells and the bath, and all the doctors had given him over. For his grandfather and father feared he would have died, and their name have gone out, having but that son. But presently after you were gone, says she, we came home and found our son playing in the streets. Therefore, said she, all the country would come to hear if I would come back and have a meeting there. And this was about three years after she told me, and he was grown to be a straight, full youth then, and the Lord have the praise. Uh, we are kind of out of time. There's one more, no crutches anymore, but I, I want to basically just close with two thoughts. Um, many of you are familiar with C.S. Lewis's Lord, Liar, Lunatic ar argument. What he basically says is that um, Islam and, and many modern... Uh, humanist and atheist and so forth will say that Jesus is a great teacher. And Lewis basically argued, uh, don't give us that nonsense because it's not even logical. It's, it's absurd. And what he's basically saying is this, Jesus clearly came, claimed to be God all through the New Testament. And so if he claimed to be God, he either is God, which is what he was crucified for. They said he was blaspheming by claiming that he was God. That was very clearly the charge against him in his trial. That's what they said. They ripped their clothes and said, you've heard the blasphemy, because they said, are you the Messiah? And he says, I am. Exodus 3.14, I am that I am. I am God. And uh, so that's what he was crucified for. And... Um, so either he is God, or he's a liar, right? Or And if he's a liar, then how can you say he's a good moral teacher? Because good moral teachers are not known for their li lifestyle of lying. <laughs> Christ would have been lying with everything he taught and everything he said throughout his entire ministry. So there's no room there to say he's a good moral teacher. He's either the Lord or a liar. you got to choose one or the other. There's a third option that makes sense. Maybe he's crazy. I have ministered to a number of people over the years in insane asylums who said to me that they were God. However, I have never known a single one of them to have any sense of rationality or sensibility or um, a sense of 
you know, coherence in their life. They were clearly fractured, um, discombobulated, very deeply troubled people that you could see that when you, when you walked in the door before you even began to talk to them. Uh, unfortunately, one of my LSD friends from my pre-Christian days who got, got into LSD to the point where you, you can't take LSD every day and get the effects, so he took LSD every other day until he totally lost his mind, and he told me he was God. And, uh, you know, and that he had power over angels and all kind of things. And he had, believe me, by the time he was in the insane asylum, he had all kinds of spiritual activity going on. <laughs> but he was not God, nor rational, nor in touch with reality, and so forth. Now, the problem with the third option that's saying Jesus, it, you know, it's, it's logical if you only go so far. When he says, I'm God, maybe he's crazy. The problem is this. For three and a half years... The best minds of, of the nation of Israel tried to get him to say something they could use against him. They came up with incredible quandaries, one of which we spent time on tonight with the woman at the well, or the woman caught in adultery. Should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? And so forth. He disarmed every one of them. He they were never able to catch him in something foolish said. I've been teaching tonight since, uh, when did we start? About 8 o'clock or something. And uh, 7.40, I think. So, and I've said a lot of things I wish I hadn't said. I wish I had managed my time better. But Jesus never said one wrong thing, even though, it, it, you know, he didn't have notes. or um, they, These were real-life situations, and he, he is the most together, coherent, balanced uh practical, rational individual. Just when you consider that they were trying to trip him up and you read through the Gospels, you, you have to stop and take worship breaks. Because he's amazing. And um, I've tried to seek God for 40-some years, and by the grace of God, I've grown some. And the more I read the Gospels and the more I think about it, the more I know he's amazing and I'm not. <laughs> not even in the same zip code, right? I mean, I hope you all see that for yourselves as well. Uh, you know, like, wow. So the problem is the lunatic thing is just absurd. So you're left with he's either lying or he's Lord. And throughout centuries, his people have been known for the truth. They've built more hospitals, and, you know, everyone likes to bash what Christians have done over the centuries, and Christians have done some terrible things in the name of Christ. Christians have done more great things than any other religion of the world by a hundred times in terms of hospitals, feeding the poor, uh, you know, anti-slavery, et cetera, et cetera. More wonderful things have been done in the name of Christ than all other religions of the world put together. So... Uh, in the same way, if you start documenting these, going through all these miracles of all these Christians throughout the centuries, you have to either conclude that they're all lying. But then why would all the Christians and philosophers say we should read their books? And they were a great Christian, and boy, everyone should study Bernard Clairvaux's devotionals. Right? 
So it's, you know, it's absurd. Frankly, the cessationist position is absurd just on the basis of history. It's irrational. It has to be motivated by something strongly wrong. I would argue strongly demonic. Because, of course, Satan hates the name of Jesus, and he hates to see miracles wrought in the name of Jesus. It's as simple as that. There can be no other real rational explanation for the position of not believing that all of these Christians throughout the centuries did astounding miracles and their, because their lives backed up their, their testimony. Not that any of them were perfect. Um, but, you know, for instance, Bernard of Clairvaux, he's a mixed bag like every other Christian. He, he regretted all his life. He recommended and preached the, the Second Crusade and lived to regret that. However, um, no other fiction, fi- figure in church history outside the New Testament writers in St. Augustine is as recommended by Luther, Calvin, Knox, and all the Reformers. All of them thought Bernard of Clairvaux, Martin Luther said, it is impossible for anyone to love Jesus more than Bernard of Clairvaux did. So you can't have it both ways. Either he did these miracles, or he really was somehow pulling the wool over everyone's eyes and he wasn't a real Christian. So, my last point, that was my second to last point, is this. One of the reasons we're focusing on this right now is, by the grace of God, we have a little bit of spiritual momentum, and as long as we can, by the grace of God, keep our plurality and our discipleship and our community, and if we can keep our emphasis on biblical studies and a culture of catechism and so forth, which most charismatic groups do not have, This will undergird with wisdom and respectability that has to be respected what God is doing here. And I believe we're just beginning to step into some anointing. And God wants us to pursue this until the lame are walking, the blind are seen. And we have many deliverances that are as astounding as some of the ones we've had recently and so forth. And uh, I believe that is our destiny, and that is what God wants us to pursue. There, Jesus was not able to do many miracles in his hometown because there was a spirit of unbelief. Western Christianity has had a spirit of unbelief, and most revivals where there have been supernatural manifestations have not been sustained because they didn't lay a deep enough foundation in the doctrines of the church and the doctrines of plurality of eldership and personal discipleship and the need for integrity and and uh, all sorts of things like that as well as uh, going back and in, in uncovering the right paradigms that were used both by the apostolic fathers and by uh, the reformers and so forth so that what we do is biblically full, biblically accurate, and biblically whole. If we can keep pressing into that while we grow in anointing, God will use this mightily for hundreds of churches to be set free. In Jesus' name, amen.